This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me just start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, with your son and we've been following his journey to Jerusalem now for some some amount of weeks and, and he's here and he's grieving over his city. He's in conflict with um, the Pharisees. There's uh, almost just like chaos with the crowds and there's all these things going on on the surface and yet we know um, because of your word, we know that Jesus is ultimately doing battle for the future of all mankind and for uh, every broken aspect of the world. And Lord, even as we consider the story and, and what we've learned over the last few months and what we've, I'm humbled by just my inability to express the magnitude of what Jesus is doing in this passage, Lord. So I pray and ask your spirit um, to illumine our eyes. I, I pray that you would help encourage us to see just the glory and the majesty and the wonder of what our Lord and Savior is accomplishing on our behalf. Help us be more impressed with your son. In your name I pray, amen. Yeah, so it's been kind of... Uh, a long journey through the book of uh, the book of Acts. Uh, Luke wrote Acts two, so the, through Luke part one, uh, part two is the book of Acts. Um, since we we started this in Advent last year in November, um, talking about the lowly rejoice, and we've sort of been we call this a, a sketch of Luke, a, a, a path to glory, and so Jesus is. Uh, uh, all the way from his birth, all the way to the announcement of his birth up through his ministry in Galilee to calling the disciples to doing battle with Satan in the wilderness. And then Luke, for some reason, spends sort of an inordinate amount of time in his gospel outlining Jesus's journey all the way to Jerusalem. And he makes comments along the way that this is on the way to Jerusalem. He makes comments earlier on, even in, we looked at last week, and the transfiguration is Jerusalem is where he was going to go to accomplish his exodus. Jerusalem is where Jesus was going to go to rescue his people who are enslaved to sin, who are under uh, the, and in some sense, how the world is under the power of the devil ever since the fall. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish something that would change the way the world is for forever. And so now, after this long journey since the beginning of, since the end of November, beginning of December, all the way up until today, we've sort of, we, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday because there's this triumphal entry of Jesus on a donkey. He's walking into Jerusalem and all of his disciples are just, uh, just praising him and uh, they're laying palm leaves down and there's this fulfillment of this, this idea of the king who would arrive in Jerusalem and do all these wonderful things. And so there's just this like, there's this energy in the crowd. There's this energy in the disciples of Jesus. There's all of these things sort of building up to this monumental time, this finale of what Jesus accomplished in Jerusalem. This grand finale of what Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about 
the things boiling over and building up that ultimately lead to what we're going to talk about on Friday, the death of Jesus on the cross. The darkest moment in human history. And also the things that lead to the celebration that we have on Easter. The, the resurrection, the light, the new dawn, the fact that we worship and praise and, and sing songs about our king who is seated on the throne. The lamb who's worthy to take the scroll and execute God's plan for all of creation. So before that happens, before we can grieve the death of Jesus, before we can celebrate the resurrection, Jesus is at a, a critical juncture in the story. He's arrived at Jerusalem, and in a sense, Satan has escalated, has ramped up, has kind of gone out of his way to get Jesus to stumble and fall and to reject and to not trust in his heavenly father. Like this is the, this is the turning point of all of history. So if you can imagine what, what Satan is thinking, what he's going through, what he's doing, what he's throwing at Jesus to just ruin it at this point, this is sort of the, the culmination of Jesus's battle with Satan himself. And I kind of called this section Jesus in crisis uh, a little bit to provoke us because we're like, hey, he's Jesus, you know, he's God. He's, um, what do you mean he's in, what do you mean he's in crisis? Like, like I think about a crisis in my life and I think about like just spiraling out of control in my head or running to something to make myself feel better or, or just scrambling to do whatever I can do to deal with the situation that's going on. And I thought it was helpful just to give a definition of crisis to help us realize like kind of what's going on here. A crisis is a, is a crucial or decisive point or situation, especially a difficult or unstable situation involving an impending change. A difficult or unstable situation involving an impending change. Jesus is about to change the world. He's the second Adam who has stepped in to do battle with Satan in ways that no other person has done in the, the history of humanity in, from, since the beginning. Everything that's broken with the world is about to begin being restored through what Jesus is about to accomplish. There is no more critical point in history than the days leading up to what Jesus would accomplish on Good Friday and ultimately the thing we celebrate in Easter. In every sense of the word, he is in a crisis right now. And I think the beauty, I think the glory, I think the thing that is hopefully encouraging to us is to see and stand in awe and learn from how Jesus handles this crisis. Like it shouldn't surprise us that he's, he is, we believe, Jesus is truly man. He's a real person. Hebrews says he was tempted every way without sin. He's legitimately struggling and doing battle with the dark forces of the world in this critical moment in history. He really is. And yet we believe he's also the son of God. 
We believe he's also uh, the, the exact imprint of the nature of God. So if you were to look at someone and say, how would God in the flesh handle a critical point in his life where everything hung in the balance, this would be the place to look. This would be an opportunity for us as we consider our future, as we have a lot of question marks about things going on in our life or in our church, as we look forward and say, man, there is an unstable situation involving some kind of impending change. How can we look at our Lord and Savior? How can we look at God in the flesh and just be enamored with how he handles this crisis? That's what I want to do this morning. And I want to flip back just to give a little bit of context. We referenced this last week. Uh, We're going to be pretty much in Luke the whole time. So if you have your Bible, have it open to Luke. Um, If you have your uh, app, you may want to be flipping back to different chapters. But we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 4 for a second, and we're going to jump back forward. Luke has an interesting comment about the Jesus being tempted by the devil. He goes through this temptation, and we know we know that in the end, the devil didn't succeed. In a sense, he was like offering Jesus an easy way out. Whether it was hunger, whether it was the kingdom, whether it was glory, uh, and, and we're not going to re-preach the whole sermon on the temptation, but here is Satan saying, look, don't trust what God has said. Don't believe your heavenly father in his words. Look, I have something better. I've got an easier way to accomplish this thing that you've come to accomplish. And no surprise, Jesus wins that battle, right? Like Satan doesn't succeed in, in pulling him away from trusting his heavenly father. And then in verse 13 of chapter four, after kind of Jesus mic drops on Satan and just handles his business, it says that, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He departed from him until an opportune time. Think about everything that's on the line as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. We have crowds flocking to Jesus and and one verse says they were trampling one another. We have the Pharisees who are just going at him and we're gonna see they're even like more direct. Uh, They're gonna be a part of the devil's scheme as he's he's working to trip up Jesus in this, this crisis moment, this like critical moment. And even leading up to that, if you look at chapter 18, Chapter 18, verse 31, on their way to Jerusalem, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Verse 31 says, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they, the disciples understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. Other gospels say they were like afraid to ask him more questions about that. We, we have a story even of Peter saying, hey, uh, we can't go there. Jesus, that's a bad idea. 
And when he responds with the get behind me, Satan, you're focusing on things of the world. So even his disciples, as they approach Jerusalem, as these, as these sort of things are going on, as the crowds are gathering for this, this giant feast that they would do every year, as his disciples are confused about Jesus talking about death, talking about being handed over, talking about being mocked, they enter Jerusalem and there's this, this, uh, this huge praise where he's coming in and he's riding on a donkey and we're gonna jump into chapter 19. He was drawing near, all, already on the way down to Mount of Olives. This is the, the, just expressing the proximity with Jerusalem. He's very close. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Like Jesus has been ministering for years now, healing people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, causing the blind to see. Amen kind of pushing back on the religious people at the time, causing some conflict there, speaking words that are just truth. And so they're praising him as he enters in Jerusalem. And look, they're saying in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He's walking into the capital city and the mob is essentially saying, this is our king. This is the one who rules and reigns. Amen. There's already a ruler there. There's already a king. This is just, this is just adding to this tension that's, that's building up as this, this crisis point as Jesus is going to the cross. And so the Pharisees say, hey, tell them to be quiet about this. Like you're caught, Jesus whoa, calm down your disciples. You're causing a bunch of problems here. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I'll tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Like even in the misguided praise and joy that's coming from the crowd, even the disciples who are really confused about like, what is this thing with the death and the resurrection, all these, these things that we really don't want to grapple with, they just can't help but proclaim the glory of Jesus. And it, where we read in verse 41, Jesus looks at Jerusalem. He looks at the city that he loves. He looks at the people who were there to embrace him, knowing what he would suffer by their hand. He weeps over Jerusalem. He knows the long extended section. We touched on this a little bit last week. He knows that their foolishness, their rejection of him will ultimately lead to their judgment. And that grieves him. That grieves him. And then he enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written in my house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. And this isn't the first time he's done this, actually, in his ministry. I appreciate what Matthew says, that Jesus was making a whip. Like Jesus was putting together a whip to drive out the people who are profaning God's temple. 
just wondering like what's going through his head while he's doing that. Like, you know, he isn't like flippant about stuff. He's not scrambling, you know? He's putting this together. And he's saying, this is my father's house. This is a place to be respected. This is a place to be in prayer. This is a place to worship. And I'm coming in here and I'm like turning things upside down. I'm flipping tables and I'm driving out people who are just making a buck off of the place where we're called to worship. Like the tension is building here (laughs) between Jesus, the crowds, the leaders. Everything is like, we're literally, we are in a point of crisis. Like something is going to give. And Luke is pretty clear about how the chief priests and the scribes responded to this. The, the principal men, the leaders of the city, says they were seeking to destroy him. They were seeking to destroy him. Like he's not mincing words about how they feel about what Jesus is doing. Like they were annoyed. They didn't like that he did that. They were seeking to destroy him. So here's what I want to do for the rest of this time. Just trying to build some of the environment that's going on. Some of the like chaos with the crowds, with the leaders, with even, even Jesus stepping into the temple and driving people out. He's zealous for worship of God. He cares about the, the, the very presence of God and the city of God and the temple of God. And he mourns over it. He wants it to be a place of worship. And his zeal for his, for his own people is actually what's causing this conflict and causing sort of this tumultuous time. And here, I think, Luke doesn't say directly, but here I think everything is a little bit crazy. And when someone is about to snap, something is about to change, I think here is where Satan is like, this is my opportune time. This is my opportune time. Here is where I can step in and mess everything up. Here is where I can tempt Jesus through deception. Here is where I can divide his community. Here is where I can get others to be concerned about the external things and not realize what God is doing. This this moment of crisis is where I can actually step in and tempt the Son of God not to trust what his heavenly father is doing. And I think, again, I want to just remind us that, yes, we, Jesus was the son of God. He's, he's the, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is aware of the schemes of the devil. He is aware very much so of what he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. But he, he, he prays at the end of this section. He's like, Lord, if there's another way for this to happen, let that be the, let's do it that way. If there's a plan B, can we do the plan B? But he says, but not your will, not my will, Lord, but yours. Yes, and everything that Satan wants is not God's will. point of crisis we see I think we see some of the devil's schemes and I think we can learn from that and say look this is how he works 
Thank the Lord that you and I stand in the perfect work of the Son. Thank the Lord that we can look to the gospel and say, Jesus never wavered. He was fixed on the cross and was making his way to Jerusalem, ready to glorify and honor the Lord. But if you remember, the very beginning of this book says, uh, I've wrote these things to you, O Theophilus, uh, a Greek word that means friend of God. It could be a name. It could be just a generic thing. I've wrote these things to you so that you would believe what Jesus is doing, so that you would believe what you've been taught. And so here we are. I think we're learning from Jesus. We can rest in him. We can say he has accomplished everything for us. But now he's sitting on the throne. He's poured out his spirit. He's given us his word so that you and I can learn as we move into whatever crisis he's put us in, you and I can be aware of the schemes of the devil. Paul encourages us in Ephesians, and we might look at that verse later. We'll see how it goes. But he's like, I want you to be aware of the schemes of the devil. And here's an opportune time now for Satan to step in and tempt Jesus not to trust his heavenly father. It shouldn't surprise us then in chapter 20, the first thing that the devil does, because he always does this, is challenge the authority of God. I mean, think about the garden. What does he say? Did God really say? Like the words that you clearly heard, Adam, did you really hear those, you know? Because at the root of it, if we don't agree, if we don't stand on the fact that God has spoken and that his word is true and that our lives should be defined by what God has said, then he's one. Like he's one. That's all he needs to do. So it shouldn't surprise us then that that's exactly where the Pharisees go and say, who are you? Why do your words matter? Look at chapter 20, verse 1. We're kind of looking at the, the devil's scheme, and he's immediately challenging the authority of Jesus through the Pharisees. Jesus calls the Pharisees that they're, they're actually their father is the devil because he lies from the beginning. So we, here we have his children immediately challenging the authority of Jesus. Verse 1 says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the good news, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And I think about, they're kind of just trying to like flex on the crowd, you know? Like, like you're doing all these wonderful miracles. You, you've raised people from the dead. You fed thousands Literally, the crowds are following you because of all the great and wonderful things you've done. It's what Luke just says. And here comes the Pharisees as Jesus is teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And they say, yeah, but why should we trust you? And they draw attention to that for the whole, all of the crowds. They're, they're working to lead the crowds astray. And Jesus answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And think about this. The baptism of John, it said that everyone was coming from all over to be baptized by John, to repent and prepare the way for the Lord. And one of the really cool scenes that we have early on in the Gospels is Jesus shows up to be baptized. 
and the, the spirit descends like a dove and what is spoken from the sky. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Like it's a public proclamation of the authority and position of Jesus as it relates to the heavenly father. This is my beloved son. Here's the son of God spoken from the sky in front of all the crowds. And they discussed with one another saying, well, they're frustrated. If we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? Like John is the one that pointed to me and said, I'm from the Lord, I have authority. (laughs) But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Shut down. (laughs) But this is what the devil does. Think about, think about unstable situations that involve impending change in our lives. We can be encouraged by the promises that God has in his word. But when we're tossed around by potential change, when we're struggling with something that we don't see the way forward, or, or stressing out about something because of what it could be, it's almost like those words go in one ear and out the other. Like the authority and the promises and the, the good things that God speaks over us, his love for us, his care for us, his desire to build his church, his persistence in working all things in our lives according to his good pleasure, for our good, for his glory. When we're in a point of crisis, it's like, don't talk to me about that. I need to figure this out. (laughs) Or whatever it is. Satan is like, yeah. Don't believe anything he said about you. Life is crazy right now. It's just, it's crazy how the, 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 just the, the way our hearts and the way that sort of demonic forces work to make wonderful, true, good things about who God is, what he said, mean nothing when we're stressed out. Like we, we set aside that authority. They continue to attack his authority. It's interesting, they approach him again. And Jesus brings up God's word to sort of silence them yet again. And then in verse 19, they have to change their strategy a little bit. They can no longer directly assault his authority. They can no longer go straight at him. So they kind of have to work, work around the side. They're gonna be a little sneakier this time. In verse 19, it says, the the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived they had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Like Jesus is speaking truth from God's word, and that truth speaking to them or trying to trip him up or trying to get him to not trust the Father. It's sort of Satan's schemes of challenging his authority. It's sort of shutting them down, and it isn't working. 
the, the, the mob, is, so to speak, is on Jesus' side. So they got to approach this a little bit differently. Verse 20 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Here is Satan looking for an opportune time. And they're like, we can't directly go after the truth of what Jesus is saying, so we're going to try another route here. So they asked him, these uh, spies who pretended to be sincere, (laughs) they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. We know that your words are true. God's word is true. Amen. What you have to say is, is really good. <laughs> you truly teach the way of God. So they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. I don't think that's an accidental word. That's how Satan was described in the garden. The craftiest. I don't know if I said that right. The most crafty? I don't. Oh, well. We'll just stick with craftiness. Lots of craftiness. He perceived their craftiness. Like they're literally working to undermine Jesus' authority. And he knows the schemes of the devil. He knows that he's crafty. And look at what he says. Show me a dinar. Show me a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. I love this in verse 26. says, they're not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. They marveled at his answer. They're the crafty ones that were coming in to just undermine Jesus' authority. And they're like, wow. This guy speaks with authority. Here's the thing. Especially in a time of crisis. Especially when the storm comes especially when things look like they're going to be really difficult. Satan wants nothing more than to challenge the authority of God's word. He wants you to doubt everything that God has said. And Jesus is trying to encourage us, trying to help us prepare for that. Go back to Luke chapter six. Because here's where I think be our last point here. I think that this is just, this. a lot kind of stems from this, right? Like if we believe and anchor and have our hope in what God has said, we're, 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 we're actually going to be working against the schemes of the devil in a lot of different places. So this is like a really important aspect. This is something that it, it shouldn't surprise us as Jesus shows up in this critical moment that the first thing Satan goes for is his authority. Because if that can be undermined, if that cannot be trusted, then all the rest sort of falls apart from there. And I think that a lot of us, when we are in a crisis situation, 
when we're at a place where it's just we're not sure what's going to happen or there's this unstable situation involving an impending change, this crisis situation, at that time, the storm is coming. We realize that we've been building our peace and our joy on something less than God's word, and we scramble, and we look at our, maybe we're in prayer. Maybe we look for that one verse that we think can, like, maybe illuminate what's going on. We're, like, running back to Scripture and saying, hey, help me, Lord. I'm in a place that's chaos right now. And what Jesus says in chapter 6 Verse 46 is, I think, instructive to us. He's encouraging us that if we're going to stand when crisis comes, if we're going to have peace and joy when the storm comes, we need to be building our foundation the whole time. We need to be building our foundation the whole time. We can't wait until crisis to say, oh, now is a good time for me to be considering what God has said. I mean, that's good if you weren't considering it, yes, It's still good to consider what God is saying. But look at this parable in verse Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Not heed my words. And there's a, a whole bunch of Jesus talking about how his word has power in this section. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the crisis arose, when the flood came, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the crisis came against it, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. I just want to encourage you that if you're at a point of crisis, you can rest in the reality that Jesus will get you through. Like he is the anchor for our soul. But he's also encouraging us and saying, I want you to have peace. I want you to have joy. I want you to be able to stand firm when, when this crisis point comes. So, in order to do that, he's encouraging us to continue to build our foundation on his word. Daily, weekly, regularly. Satan is very smart. I, uh, the mighty fortresses are God says his craft and power are great. And he's armed with cruel hate. He's going to find a way with, to get you to doubt what God is saying. And Jesus is saying, look, let me show you where you need to rest. Let me show you where you need to build your foundation. Let me show you it needs to be a regular part of your life. Resting and learning and leaning into and just understanding more and more the beauty and glory of what I've said in my word. And when you do that, as we are united to Christ and we enter into a crisis point, as we enter into a place and the schemes of the devil are coming at us and God's word is sort of falling on deaf ears, he's encouraging us and saying, if we've built our foundation on his word, we can stand firm in the storm. There can be peace. There can be joy. There can still be love that comes from this point of crisis.
It's interesting. That Satan comes and attacks Jesus' authority right off the bat. But I think in and through the Pharisees, he wants us to focus when there's a crisis, he wants us to focus on the external things. He wants those things to be more important. Jesus again sort of warns his disciples of the Pharisees and we're back in chapter 20, verse 45. Jesus is warning his disciples of the Pharisees and he's making a point about what they care about, what their priority is. In a sense, what, is, what does Satan want us to consider more important? And look what he says in verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. It's like, look at all the things they're all about. They like the best seats, they like honor at feasts. They're extra concerned about all of these external things. And this is Satan working through the religious leaders of the day. And he gives us, he points at someone who's giving an offering in the temple to make this point in the very next verse. He says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box at the temple They would tithe, they would give money. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Amen. Think about the like, I mean, that's like one of those like encouraging little stories and stuff. But Uh, we're a church where we have a budget and we look at the numbers and we look at how much comes in and we look at how much comes out. It's easy, or you guys get the newsletter and kind of see all those numbers. (laughs) It's easy for us to say, that's really important. And it's not not important. Like tithing and offering to the Lord is a good and wonderful thing that's encouraged all through scripture. Jesus isn't, Dismissing the activity that's going on. But he's pointing to the reality that it's more important, it's more valuable, it's more meaningful that someone would trust the Lord so much, would lean on the presence and, and who God is and what he's doing, and would have so much trust in the character of God that they were willing to give all that they had, which was really nothing at all. We don't like, we would rather do the big external thing and say, ha, look. (laughs) Or maybe as I look at the budget, I would rather see the big thing come in, you know? (laughs) 
But do we, when we're in a moment of crisis, do we prioritize what God is doing internally? Do we prioritize how he's building trust in us of his character? Do we prioritize that he is the one who is receiving glory and honor and praise as we trust him in these difficult moments? Is that the most important thing to us when we're in a crisis? Is that we trust him more and he gets more glory and honor? Not usually, you know? (laughs) When things get chaotic, that almost just gets easily pushed aside. When are we more likely to excuse our anxiety? When are we more likely to be okay with anger and upset and just chaos in our own minds is when things are not going right. Because what we've done is we've fallen into the trap that Satan is working to trip us up and we've begun to prioritize the external things. And Jesus is, look at, look at Jesus. He's here as like all this chaos is going on, this conflict with the leaders, the, the crowds that are going around him. And he's saying, look at the faith that that lady has in God. He goes on in chapter 21. The very next verse. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Like he's, he's making a comment about how this lady is trusting the Lord and how people like to give these big gifts so they look all fancy. And people, and it's almost like people are like, yeah, isn't the temple really cool, you know? Like look at how great it is. Look at how it's adorned. Look at how fancy it is. And there's a whole chapter about him saying, look, this is going to get torn down. Even this thing that's built, that I value, that I, that I drove people out of because this is where God worshiped. Even this external thing that God ordained to be worshiped in is going to go away. The temple is going to become the people of God gathered together to be in the presence of God. I'm going to raise from the dead. (laughs) He points to himself and says, this temple is going to raise up, be seated in the heavenly places and draw all people to myself. I think it's easy in a time of crisis to prioritize the external. I think it's easy to look at the things that we can see with our eyes and scramble to ensure that works out a certain way. But if our hearts are fixed on the glory and majesty of God, where does God get more credit for our faith in him when we trust him, when things are great? Or when we look around and say, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know what the end result of these crazy things are. But I know that the God that I worship is with me and I trust him and he's good. Amen. He gets more credit for that. And Satan is like, don't worry about those things. That's not important. What's going to happen next month? What about your bank account? What will people think? And we fall into it. 
will end with Satan's desire to divide the community. In chapter 22, he literally steps into the story in a way that's explicit. Chapter 22, verse 3 said, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who is one of the number of the twelve, This is a critical moment in the history of the world as Jesus makes his way to the cross. These are Jesus' closest friends, his strongest allies, the 12 disciples. And Satan steps in and possesses one of them. Don't ask me to explain all of that. <laughs> but he's obviously working to destroy what Jesus is doing. And and Judas then in verse four went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Well, they can't go about it directly. They can't even break into his inner circle. So Satan steps in, takes possession of Judas and works to betray Jesus. And you might think, well, you know, uh, Judas is fulfilling prophecies. Jesus is, is talking about, uh, is sort of like God is just working this out so, so this can happen in a way that fulfills the Old Testament or that we, we want Jesus to go to the cross and there's a lot of true elements to that. But if you think about how Satan is working, it doesn't actually end with Judas. They enjoy the Passover together. Jesus is encouraging his disciples and talking about this new covenant in his own blood. They're breaking bread, they're drinking wine. And then right after they do that, Jesus says in verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. For the son of man goes and has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? So he's, he's bringing this reality that Judas is going to betray him. They're questioning one another, like, okay, who is this? Who is, the, who is going to be the one that betrays us? And I think the very next, here's where they go after that. They're like, oh, no. Jesus, someone is going to betray us. Something's going to happen and you're going to be handed over. And the very next thing is, oh, by the way, who's like the best of all of us? <laughs> like that's the next, like a dispute also arose among them as we're talking about this to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What better way to divide the community than to throw someone under the bus so that we all feel a little bit better and talk about how much greater we are than this amorphous person that probably did something bad. So here are the disciples now as Jesus is praying and asking for them to encourage me, help me. I'm I'm doing all these, the, the Passover meal with them and the disciples are bickering about who is the greatest one of all of them because they found out about someone who was gonna be the worst. And then Jesus steps in and speaks to them and says to Simon, 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 in verse 31, behold, Satan demanded to have you 
that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know if I'm the greatest, but I'm definitely up there with, with a few of them. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you've denied three times that you know me. On every front, Satan is working to divide the community. He's working to bring division. He takes possession of Judas. He has the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. He, 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 he demanded to have Peter that he might sift him like wheat. And I think that we can be encouraged and say, thank you, Lord, that you prayed for him. Even today, as Jesus rules and reigns, he's sitting in heaven, interceding and praying for us on our behalf. Amen. Like he didn't stop doing that. He's up there right now praying for Emmaus as the, as the world, the flesh, the devil, everything around us outside of the spirit of God desires for us to be divided. Yes, and not Emmaus, but church, the big C church other communities like this is how he works he wants us to bicker he wants us to think we're better than other people he wants us to not be united and here's jesus in heaven today praying for us on our behalf thank the lord that he does that but he does that as he communicates in his word and says guys i don't want you to be blind to the way satan works i want you to be aware of his schemes I want you to learn from me as I, as I walk into this crisis point, as I make my way to the cross, as we talk about just the despicable things that happened to Jesus on Good Friday coming up. Do you know what he does to prepare to, to see the community stay together? He regularly goes to his father in prayer. He regularly goes to his father in prayer. We won't turn there, but it's interesting in Ephesians where Paul encourages us to not be caught up in the schemes of the devil. He ends that section by saying, and be always and consistently in prayer for the saints. All we're doing in prayer, maybe not all we're doing, a big part of what we're doing in prayer is we're saying, Lord, I know the schemes of the devil. I know that he wants me to doubt your authority. I know he wants me to care about the external things more than my heart being fixed on you. I know that he wants us to be divided and there not to be unity within the community. I know all these things and I'm coming before you in prayer. I'm pleading with you because I need you to act. I need your power to be the thing that holds us together. I need you're the one to change my heart so that I'm more concerned about how I glorify and honor you. I need you to be the one to make your words be as a foundation in my life. We're going to the Lord in prayer because we know the schemes of the devil because there is power for him to be destroyed. We're going to the one sitting on the throne who has already crushed the head of the serpent. He's squirming around a lot, trying all he can to mess things up. 
But when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're saying, I know his schemes and I know the king of glory who sits on the throne and is able to destroy the schemes of the devil. Amen. That's who we're going to. So let's go to him and ask for his help this morning. Father, I thank you that we can look at your word and look at your son and just be impressed with the glory and majesty and wisdom of the life of Jesus. We know that he was in just an unreal point of crisis as he moves towards the cross. We know that everything around him was working against him. And yet, Lord, he comes to you and prays that you would be glorified. <clears throat> he comes to you and prays that you would protect his people, his community. He intercedes today, even on our behalf, Lord. So we're, we're coming to you, learning from Jesus and just begging you to sustain us, Lord, in our moments of crisis. Give us wisdom to be in your word and to build a, a firm foundation. Lord, give us eyes to see in our own lives where we prioritize so many external things and, and yet you just want us to trust you and love you and have faith in you and care for you, Lord. Help us with that. And Lord, we know that the last thing Satan wants is for us to be united in our desire to glorify you and to humble ourselves and to come before you. So Lord, I pray that through your spirit, by your son, that you would continue to hold this community, that we'd be united in one voice to say, we worship a God who is good. We trust him. Help us with that. In your name I pray, amen.